Hi, this is Pastor Jake from Harvest Community Church. We meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. at 18511 East Hampton Avenue, Suite 204. We're located in the Movie Tavern Shopping Center next to the State Farm. You can check us out online at Facebook or on our webpage at harvestcolorado.org. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Well, we're in Psalm 87. By the way, if you were curious on kind of the finer points from last week's sermon that I was not able to deliver, they're on Facebook. Um, I kind of put them out throughout the week, so kind of the applications. And I apologize. Um, I was there. There was a <clears throat> a place I was actually going towards, and a lot of you probably heard kind of the anger and the kind of the the passion part, and you didn't hear kind of the practical part. And so it's on Facebook if you want to see that. Uh, and if you want me to preach it to you, I'd be glad to set up an appointment, and I'll just yell at you there. It's weird when you come to the Psalms. Sometimes you don't know what you're going to get. It's kind of like when uh, Isabel and Jen went and played bingo last night at her school. They had a fundraiser for that. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I get my kids confused. Look, they know, they understand. Their parents out there, they get what it's like what to mess your kids up. So, your dad calls a party a fundraiser. That's true, too. <laughs> Hannah and Jen were at bingo last night. God, this is going on tape. This is terrible. <laughs> they were at a fundraiser last night at her school to play bingo. And uh, bingo's at, uh, Hannah had never played bingo before, so we actually had to explain it to her what was going to happen. And you know, you get the balls that pop up out of the cage, and you think it's B8 or 9 or whatever it happened to be, and, uh, and you go on and on and on, and hopefully you get bingo and win a prize. Um, well, sometimes the Psalms are like that, and in terms that you don't know what Psalm 87 is going to give you, because that's the next one in line. And so I read it this week and went, I have no idea how I'm going to preach this. It's one of those weird psalms that just doesn't have a whole lot of anything that makes sense to you. It's, it's kind of one of those contextual psalms that made sense way back in the day that the psalmist wrote it. So how do we incorporate that? How do we use that? How do we take Psalm 87 and make it our own? How do we understand it? Well, let's take a dive into it. Thankfully, it's only seven verses uh, on this snowy day. Go with me there. Psalm 87. A psalm of the son, uh, sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mountain stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, as I, me or I mentioned Rahab and Babylon, behold Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers all the people, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. Kind of an odd psalm. What do we do with this one? I think the psalmist is trying to communicate, obviously, something to us that's rather important enough that he wrote it down and we put it in the Bible. I think he's trying to let us know here that the church is a place where the presence of God is, where rebirth happens, and where joy abounds. So the church is where the presence of God dwells. If we look at verse 1 through 3, On the holy mountain stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. In the great movie, Field of Dreams, okay, I know, the teens and the young folk over here, young adults are like, what's that? 
Field Dreams is a great movie. Field Dreams is about a, 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 a farmer in Iowa. He and his wife have a, a large uh, share of, of uh, corn crop, and, and that's what they do. They farm. And so one day he's just out there, and he hears a mysterious voice that says, If you build it, they will come. If you build it, they will come. Now, for those of you who have not, who may have not have seen it, it's a movie about baseball. And that you may just go, well, forget it. I don't want to watch it. But it really is a fantastic movie. If you build it, he will come. And in the end, what happens is he builds this giant baseball uh, field out in the middle of his corn, right next to his house. And out of nowhere in the movie are all these people who are old, the old uh, uh, Chicago Black Sox who were uh, charged with throwing the World Series and put a, uh, you know, a real stain on their legacy because they were a fantastic team. And they all got a chance to come and play in this place and redeem themselves, as it were. I won't spoil the rest of the movie because it has a little more poignancy to it, but I was thinking about that movie when I was reading this particular part of the scripture. On the holy mountain stands the city that he founded. Instead of, if we build it, he will come. If he builds it, we will come. You see, the city of God is a place where the presence of God dwells. God himself pours himself into this particular one place in time. And he's a drawing force like a magnet and draws all men unto himself. Tents or temples are built on the foundation of God's desire to dwell with man. From the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, God's intention is to dwell with man. And all throughout the history of Israel, God's intention is to dwell with man, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, Solomon, all the kings up until the point of Jesus and beyond. God has it in his DNA to be relational with man because he himself is relational within himself. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have this eternal relationship and they share that in us when they are here with us. You see, the permanent city of God picture, or pictures uh, a symbol of place of rest from wandering at a single point of entry to all who would come. I belong to a small group on Facebook called the Small Church or the Small Pastors Group, a Small Church Pastors Group. And it affords me the opportunity to teach small churches from all over the world. Places that are in potent uh, uh, flyover cities that you'll never hear of. In fact, uh, one of them happens to be in a town called Milesville. Milesville is about 20 miles north of Phillips, South Dakota. And apparently the way you get there is you drive north on the paved road 20 miles until it becomes a dirt road. And then you go 5 miles more until you come to a intersection with another dirt road and there are four buildings on either corner you have four in Milesville you have a town hall which is sometimes used you have a Catholic church a Lutheran church and an E-free church you think we're small we're a mega church compared to Milesville but I get to see these beautiful places of worship in India, there is a small church pastor who is in India who posts regularly of his church. It is no bigger than the middle section of our congregation here. And it is built out of corrugated steel on a dirt floor with wooden benches, no microphones, no instruments, and yet the presence of God dwells in that place. Tents and shacks, cathedrals, in small storefront churches like ours, these are the places where God dwells. 
I think a lot of times we get kind of hung up on the idea that, well, God only dwells where there are big crowds. And I would say, no, if that were true, Jesus may have said where there are two or three hundred gathered in my name. But he said where there are two or three, there I am in the midst. Church is where the presence of God dwells. The city of God is where God dwells. But it's also a place of immense wonder. You see, the psalmist feels this power of the presence of God. Tents and temples both held the presence of God for them. If you know your history, uh, Israel wandered around the desert for 40 years in tents. And they carried the presence of God wherever they went. And they would set it up wherever they stopped. So the presence of God was in some sort of old army surplus tent that smelled. If you've been a Boy Scout or know what that smells like, there is a funk that comes with the tent that you pull out. I know you're shaking your head, not your tent. But uh, I remember my Boy Scout days that we would pull out these tents, these army tents from way back, and you would sleep in there's this canvas smell that you cannot get away from. So just imagine 40 years of the same canvas smell that they set up the place where you worship. Yet the presence of God was there. The wonder of God was there that God himself would follow them in such a way that he would place himself in a special way in the midst of the people. To Sistine Chapel. To look upon that ceiling and seeing Genesis painted out in wondrous glory. But both represent the presence of God among men. The city of God is where holy stuff happens, where remission of sin and restoration with God and man occur. It's a place of a take-your-shoes-off kind of place. If you've ever had a chance to go over to Our Lady of Loretto, which is a beautiful Catholic church off of Arapaho, or off of, yeah, Arapaho Road in Buckley, walk in there sometime during Christmas or Easter when the crowds aren't there and tell me if you don't sense the wonder of God and sense His divine presence in that place. Almost as if you need to take your shoes off because it is holy, like when Moses experienced God on that mountain with the burning bush. Or like last week we went up to uh, uh, the Mother Cabrini Shrine. Now, I was always thinking that that shrine or that giant statue was the statue of her. It's not. It's a beautiful statue of, the, of Jesus very top of this mountain. You walk up these steps with the uh, stations of the cross on the right side and you walk up this thing. You walk and walk and it's up there and it's a special place. And It's a place of wonder. It's a place of the presence of God. But not only is it a place, the city of God a place of the presence of God where He dwells with us, but it's also a place where rebirth happens. I want you to notice something here which is very strange. I don't see this very often in Scripture, but you see this in verse 4. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon and Philistia and Tyre and Cush. Rahab is just another code word in the Bible for Egypt. So you have Egypt on one hand, and you have Babylon on the other, as if they were bookends of, of oppression and bookends of God's enemies on the earth. You had Egypt who oppressed Israel way back in the day, and you had Babylon who took Israel into captivity. But in the middle, you have these enemies of God. You always see in, in uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 uh, Kings, wars with the Philistines. In the middle, you have these factions of, of enemies of God. And yet, God somehow says that His city will be filled with people who are from these places. 
They're not considered enemies anymore in this psalm. Rather, they're considered family, those whom God has reborn and remade into citizens of His holy city. See, somehow in this song, God has intervened and opened a way of reconciliation amongst all the nations. I love that the Olympics is coming up. I love that I get a chance to go sit at my office uh, because NBC is hosting all of them. Uh, I get uh, broadcasting. I get the chance to go and be there during prime time and get to watch and see all of the, the great events. And what a great event it is. All of the nations of the world come to throw themselves down perfectly good mountains with ice on it. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, especially skeleton. Let me just have an aside here. Adults who do this have a special something missing in their minds. To throw themselves down a giant ice chute wearing nothing but spandex and a helmet on a sled that has no protection, I'll watch it. Trust me, I'll watch it, but I think it's dumb to do. But there's this beautiful part that happens where we get this thing that's called opening ceremonies where all of the nations of the world gather together and none of them are warring. Enemies and allies all together in one location. You have this unity. You have this beautiful unity and this beautiful diversity that you will never find out anywhere else. Maybe except for maybe the United Nations when they do their General Assembly. But for the most part, you have this one time every four years or every two years as it were of unity. And in the city of God, He brings this unity, something that we can look forward to. A place of diversity, of nations, a house of prayer for all. John Calvin once said this, he says, those who were formerly deadly enemies or entire strangers shall not only become familiar friends, but shall also be engrafted into one body that they may be accounted citizens of Jerusalem. You see, this church is to be a place that represents God on earth. That's what he's saying here in this psalm. Not only is it a place where God dwells, but it is a place where God binds the wounds, heals the rifts, and brings humanity into a state of unity that we cannot manufacture on our own. He makes family out of enemies. And lastly, the church is where ultimate joy abounds. Blessed joy. We were just talking about this out in the foyer before church started about where the happiest place on earth is. Some of you, it could be in your uh, your bed on a snowy day like today. For some of you, it's Disneyland. I am not counted amongst those who believe that Disneyland is the happiest place on earth. Comedian Jim Gaffigan says is that if you haven't been to Disneyland as an adult, just imagine standing in line or standing in line at the DMV. And and that's it. Don't talk to me about that at all. But the psalmist seems to be saying here at the very end, singers and dancers alike all say, my springs are in you. God is telling us in this psalm, the psalmist is telling us in this psalm that the city of God becomes the source of our ultimate joy and our ultimate meaning. See, we normally we associate joy with a momentary experience or event, the result of something we do. But biblical joy is, though, is the result of what God has done for us. I go grocery shopping every two weeks, and there is a semblance of joy when the children and my wife come and finally open the pantry and in the fridge and go, ah, finally, food! Yay! And then the good stuff's gone in like a day. I'm not lamenting. I am. I'm lamenting a little bit. 
But the joy comes from the fact that what you want is already there. Somebody has done something for you already and put that stuff there. And so your joy is based upon the grace and goodness of another. And the joy that God has given us is because He has Himself given us all that we need for this life and the next. And that is the foundation of biblical joy. It's a state of mind and heart that rests in the goodness of God's grace towards us in Christ. So the peace of soul that flows from being completely accepted by God and fully at home amongst His people. It's the result of such joy is a celebratory life full of song and dance. See, joy can span the range of emotions to include gladness and lament. We still have joy. Dance can express great sorrow and great hope all at once. But yet, joy, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, undergirds all of it. It is the foundation upon which the city of God is built. So then how do we experience this? How do we experience the dwelling of God with man? How do we experience this unity and diversity? How do we experience this abounding joy? Whether the psalmist knew it or not, he was writing something prophetic here. Verse 2, The Lord loves the gates of Zion. I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus in John 10 says that I am the door. A gateway is simply a giant door into a place. Jesus says, I am the door. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. The Lord loves Christ, who became for us a doorway into the great city of God. It's almost as if the psalmist got a peek into the future and saw the Messiah as the gateway into the dwelling place of God. And Jesus has become for us, by his death and his resurrection, the way in And while the admission price for you and I is free, it costs God everything. And our entrance is simply trusting that His finished work is done, and we too can find ourselves exactly where we never knew we always wanted to be. We trust in Christ and what He's done. He is the doorway. He is the gates of Zion. And this experience that we have with Him is is in reality. It's tangible, it's felt, it's experienced. It's not something we just drum up on our own like we whoop ourselves into a, 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 a fever. We twirl around until something, until something happens. No, God has already done all these things for us and provided tangible experiences for us to root us in the reality of who He is and what He has done for us in the city of God. And here's how He does it. In community. If you notice, this entire psalm is about Community. It is about people relating with God and people relating with each other. Diversities of people together and unity of relationship. We experience, we really honestly experience the presence of God in others who have been saved by His grace. You all are the presence of God to me. When Hannah went missing last week, you were the assurance that God would work all things out according to His goodness and His mercy. You prayed. Immediately, you went into the presence of God that was already here and said, let's ask the Father for this one thing. And wouldn't you know it, the presence of God intervened. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. You see, relationship with each other and relationship with God. This is where we experience God. In this room, out there, when we go to lunch, when you hang with your brothers and sisters in a small group, 
when you call somebody on a text and say, hey man, can you pray for me? We experience the presence of God. But we also experience the presence of God in worship. When we sing, when we pray, when we listen to the Word being preached, God is here. We experience Him in this book. When we read the words of the psalmist, when we read the words of Jesus and Paul, when we read the words of Moses, we are not just simply getting rules for life, but we are experiencing the very presence of God speaking directly to our situations and where we are in life. God has not left us alone. And lastly, I believe this with all my heart, we experience God in the, His presence in communion. See, as the psalmist is crafted to help us feel and experience God, remember, the psalms are like songs and great poems that help us dig into this experience of emotion that we have and feel something. They are designed to help us experience God in prayer and communion for us is in our experience of the presence of God in a meal. There's a tangible reason why he said, this is my body with real bread. There's a reason he says this is my blood in the cup, in the wine or the grape juice, in this thing. We experience God in a tangible thing that is not made out of stuff of heaven in a sense, but it is made out of the things down here. God dwelling with us. So as we move to communion this morning, I want us to remember that when we eat this bread and when we drink this cup, we celebrate God's desire to dwell with us. Not only now, but also then, when we will see Him once again. And He will eat the meal with us, as it says in the Scriptures.